This is the Global Broadcasting Service, serving remote outposts since 1928. The weather here this morning is hot and humid. A typhoon warning has been issued for coastal areas near the South China Sea, and a storm watch has been posted along the coast of eastern Africa. And now, let's get back to our musical program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special Global Broadcasting Service presentation. My name is Rusty Sandybottom, and I'm here live at the Cushing Home for the Performing Arts for what promises to be the cultural event of the season. Tonight, the 1951 Downplace Players bring us the musical and stage adaptation of the classic Hammer film One Million Years B.C. This production has been in the planning stages for almost two years. Writer, director, and producer Derek M. Cook said that this will be his masterpiece. This performance will also feature rising theater star Casey Criswell in his most challenging role to date as Tumak. Casey has been quoted as saying that he is dedicating tonight's performance to his idol, Peter Cushing. The orchestra is just about ready, and it's time for tonight's performance of One Million Years B.C. Brought to you live on the Global Broadcasting Service by Frank's Female Fabrication. Enjoy, everyone. Hello and welcome everyone to episode number 24 of the 1951 Downplace podcast for August 2013. My name is Scott and my co-hosts Derek and Casey are currently adjusting their fur bikinis for our discussion of Hammer's One Million Years B.C. from 1966. This film stars the beautiful Raquel Welch as cave girl Loana. Welch appeared in one of my favorite films from the 1960s, Fantastic Voyage. If you think she looks good in a fur bikini, you should see her wearing that skin-tight white leather diving suit. Yowza! Also starring in One Million Years B.C. is John Richardson as Tumak. Richardson also appeared in Hammer's She, which we covered in episode number 10, and Derek's all-time favorite Hammer film, The Vengeance of She, from 1968. Another highlight of the film, at least for me, is Martine Bestwick playing New Pondy. Now, she has appeared in not one, but three James Bond films, Dr. No, From Russia With Love, and Thunderball. Now, right after we give a listen to the trailer, Derek, Casey, and I set our DeLoreans, police call boxes, phone booths, and other time machines for one million years B.C. One million years B.C. erupts on the screen with volcanic excitement. One million years B.C., when the earth parted and the mountains fell. Primitive man and monstrous beasts fought each other to inherit the earth. Since time began, has the primitive scene been captured for the screen with such imaginative realism? Ah! Behold man one million years B.C. 
Introducing the fabulous Raquel Welch, the sensational star discovery of this or any other year in one million years B.C. See her as Loana the Fair One, who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumac of the Rock People. John Richardson as Tumac, as big and strong as the beasts he fought for survival. Nupondi the Wild One, whom no man could resist. See the fascinating, strange and fearful creatures who roamed and ruled the Earth a million years B.C. The Brontosaurus, a moving mountain of flesh and bone. The Pterodactyl, a flying reptile with giant teeth. The flesh-eating Allosaurus. Triceratops, a horned dinosaur in battle with the savage Ceratosaurus. You will share the unending thrills and excitement of a world of primitive wonders, of primeval terror and savagery. You will indeed live in another world, in another time, as the centuries fall back to reveal the Earth one million years B.C. Introducing the fabulous Raquel Welch as Loana the Fair One. John Richardson as Tumac. Captain Caveman! Unga Bunga. Oh. <laughs> hey, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for a discussion, a lively discussion of what was billed as Hammer's 100th production. One Million Years B.C. from 1966, starring Raquel Welch and John Richardson, directed by Don Chaffee. we got Scott and Casey on the line here, and I'm Derek, and we're going to talk about this movie. Uh, how's everybody doing? Um, pretty good. On the scale of uh, Furkinis, I'm like a uh, almost to a Raquel Welch. <laughs> okay. This one we probably didn't need to give anybody. Scott, how are you? Uh, I'm just coming over a, a little bit of a cold, so if I sound a little different, that's why. Just like Raquel Welch a little bit while shooting this movie. It was ice cold. She said she was, it was there, and uh, yeah, she was sick. Would you say she had a, caught a chest cold? <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't there. I got sick in the same way. I see. I see. Running around the Canary Islands in a fur bikini. Of course. Doesn't everybody? Well, I don't know what you do with your weekends, but <laughs> so we we have a a movie to talk about here. Um... <laughs> so I don't know if this movie is actually Hammer's one hundredth production. Uh, it was touted as such, but I have not run the numbers and like counted everything. I, I don't know if it's the one hundredth film. I do know that this was. Hammer's biggest gamble. The budget on this movie went to over 2.5 million pounds. Wow. That's heavy. <laughs> I wonder where they, what they spent it on. Wardrobe. And then <laughs> the, uh, 
Despite being its biggest gamble, however, it also became its most successful and profitable, bringing in tons of money. I don't have the exact numbers on that. It made a superstar out of Raquel Welch, a sex symbol of the 60s, and uh, it led to two follow-up films from Hammer. Not featuring Raquel Welch because, uh, well, Hammer said they created a monster with Raquel because she became so popular after this movie, she pretty much got priced out of Hammer's budgetary uh, crosshairs moving forward. So they would create a couple of other uh, dinosaur films featuring other leading ladies showing more and more skin. This movie was shot in the Canary Islands, and come on. I mean, sure, the three of us are guys. We're going to talk about Raquel Welch. But this movie has another draw for, well— Anybody who likes fantasy film, the special effects work of Ray Harryhausen. I mean, Harryhausen and Hammer, two great tastes that go good together, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There was one other draw for me personally being a a Disney fan, and that's uh, director Don Chaffee. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually directed one of my all-time favorite guilty pleasure Disney films, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he was the director of Pete's Dragon. Well, that makes sense because he had also done Jason and the Argonauts with Harryhausen, which blends live action with Harryhausen's animation. Pete's Dragon is live action with cartoon animation, so hand-drawn mm-hmm. animation. So that makes sense. You mentioned at the top of the show all the James Bond connections to this thing. With Martine Bestwick being in three different James Bond films. Is that the top? Is that the max that we've hit so far? I think so. And really, I'm kind of stretching it a little bit when I say she was in three James Bond films, because in Dr. No, she's the girl in silhouette that dances during the opening credits. That counts. Casey, do you think that counts? Yeah, I'd say it counts. Yeah, we'll give that to you, Scott. So, yep, she was in that, Thunderball, and From Russia With Love. And she has a pretty good girl fight in From Russia With Love. It's a lot longer than than, uh, in this film. (laughs) <laughs> she, I was going to say, she did have a girl fight in this. So. so this movie is one of Hammer's few true remakes. This was originally a film from 1940, I believe. We'll see exact here on that. It's a Hal Roach production starring Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, it's a very interesting movie. I'm a big Lon Chaney Jr. fan, so I just actually recently watched it. This movie tends to follow the original story pretty well. Except for it doesn't have an alligator with uh, fins taped to the top of it. Uh, I was going to say, <laughs> except for the dinosaurs. Uh, the dinosaurs in this are not uh, the, the same caliber as the original film. And that's not to say they were worse. They're actually much, much better. I think this is some great Harryhausen work. But yeah, the original film, 1940s, Hal Roach, Lon Chaney Jr. Hammer comes along, remakes the film, shoots well, on the Canary Islands for the most part, and creates a world that surpasses the original films. Uh, the original films, it's pretty obvious. It's sets and things like that. But uh, this one has the feel of maybe even being shot on location in bits when it's not clear that they're fighting or walking or acting against, I want to say green screen, but I might have, it might have just been blue screen back then or some other process shot. Actually, the vid- the version video that I watched had an interview with uh, Harryhausen. He said a lot of it, um, there was just a guy in a pole. Well, what I'm referring to, though, there's a couple scenes where there are no dinosaurs. Oh, okay, yes. And and you can tell that they're acting against maybe a, pa- a map painting or something. It's not very well done. It actually is worse than the Dynamation scenes with Harryhausen. I, I love what Harryhausen does, and I mean no disrespect, but you can tell. 
sometimes, especially as these movies get more and more remastered and updated and cleaned up and high def and all that, you can tell where the, the line is between what was actually shot and Harryhausen's work. And that's okay. I mean, it's just, it's a product of the time, whatever. But the scenes, especially with the wild, unkempt hair, it's, it's hard to, to make those match. I, I don't know if I'm making much sense here, but there are some scenes where it's obviously they're shooting on a set against a blue screen, against a matte painting, some sort of process shot. Yeah, shot at different times and whatnot. Yeah. I also... Um Agree. You know, one of the things that uh, I had problems with some of the special effects was the early dinosaurs they come across, which was yeah. the iguana <laughs> and the uh, tarantula, which were actual real animals that they filmed and then superimposed them so they looked a lot bigger. I thought those were kind of silly. Silly. Yeah. I know that, uh, again, in that documentary that I watched, Harryhausen said they wanted to do that so the audience would get the. Um, idea that these animals were real so when the stop motion took over the audience would still think they were real i thought that the 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 first two were really kind of silly and what was interesting he was also talking about the iguana how under the hot lights it just tended to want to lay there and go to sleep and didn't <laughs> really want to do anything and they I had have a, the same problem <laughs> yep so they had a, a stagehand kind of using him basically as a puppet to try to get him to move the way they wanted him to move. <laughs> Poking it with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> I had also read that uh, Harryhausen wanted to include those as well as kind of like an homage to the original because that's what they did in the original. just extreme close-ups of various animals. I thought it was kind of an homage. And, you know, as a modern audience now, I think coming to it, I found them – well, I said the word silly – Knowing that Harryhausen was involved, I was looking at this. And I was like, "What? What is this? I don't. What? What? This doesn't make sense." But you know, whatever. Maybe back in the sixties, people were the audiences were more. Uh, I don't know, able to take that leap. I don't know. I mean, we're coming from the. You know, we've seen Jurassic Park, and we know how well it can be done. But obviously, not that way in the mid sixties. Right. And so we're kind of tainted a little bit, I think. Yeah. I don't think we're taking anything away from what Harryhausen did with the with the dinosaurs themselves. I mean, those look great. They look as good as any other Harryhausen. Oh, when you get to creature. the stop motion stuff, that stuff's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Even the stop motion Raquel Welch was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes when the people are incorporated into the stop motion, it does look a little silly, but she looked great. Anyway, uh, for bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> All right, so uh, as far as the movie goes, uh, like I said, it was a remake of the 1940s film directed by Tom Chaffee. Michael Carreras is, you know, kind of steering Hammer toward non-horror projects, that sort of thing at the time. So this was something that he wanted to add to the Hammer catalog. The Fur Bikinis did something pretty important for Hammer. Uh, I mean, sex appeal has always been part of the Hammer equation. I mean, we, we know this from the very beginning, uh, especially as soon as they went color. Pretty ladies, the dresses, you know, the little bit of cleavage here and there. It's part of the deal. But this movie, according to Bruce G. Hellenbeck, the image of Raquel Welch with her flowing blonde hair, toned thighs, and pronounced cleavage, standing legs astride on the barren plains of uh, the Canary Islands, trumpeted to the world in no uncertain terms that the era of hammer glamour was at hand. And... 
I read this in a few other places as well that this movie seemed to be the real signal for Hammer that we are going to show a lot more skin. And I guess I never really thought about that. I always assumed that was a Dracula or Frankenstein thing and then just kind of spilled over into other productions or facets of Hammer. But I suppose in terms of timing, this makes sense because after this, you've got Frankenstein created woman with the image of a woman, uh, Frankenstein's woman in a white bikini being used on the poster. Uh, you've got the more aggressively sexual, sexualized images of women in the Dracula films. Was that? I, I guess I never really looked at the timeline and kind of figured that out. What I thought was interesting about the fur bikini is that uh, Time Magazine actually listed that fur bikini in the top ten bikinis of pop culture. Wow. Because you figure the time period and whatnot when it first, uh, you know, when that movie came out and whatnot, it was culturally around the world. It was a time where everybody's views on sexualism and stuff like that are sexuality and stuff, I should say, is a better word for it, was starting to loosen up a bit. And that's not a pun or anything like that. But, they, you know, it was more <laughs> widely accepted. And it was, you know, they weren't as strict about it and whatnot when that first started coming out. And so I could see that as being an important one culturally because, you know, it was started to herald the beginning of that period. I mean, part of the reason why Raquel Welch agreed to do the movie is because she had seen that in London, things were kind of starting to get crazy. You know, people were on the streets, London, swinging London, that sort of thing. And so she signed up for Hammer because of that. She wanted to go to London and be part of that. They didn't shoot there, but that was part of the, the drive. I mean, that was definitely in the, the pop culture landscape at the time that things were changing. And as soon as she got off the plane after getting done making the movie, this image of her, uh, the one shot of her, I mean, everybody knows this image, you know, her in the fur bikini you know, that I just described. That was all over the place. It was, it was reproduced in 200 different posters and, and magazine publications. It became one of the top selling posters of the 1960s. It was all over the place. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely had an impact. And I, I'm sure that if the three of us grew up in the 60s, we would have had that poster on the wall. Yep. I suspect Scott probably still does. I'm sorry. I'm still looking at Time's list, seeing the other ladies, lovely ladies on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't remember if my memory is foggy or not, but wasn't that poster on the wall in Shawshank at one point, too? Yes, it was. Yeah. That's a thought. Yeah, in the Shawshank Redemption, this is the poster that Andy Dufresne asks to have put up on his prison wall so that he can hide the hole that he's digging. Yep. So it definitely has a place in in pop culture. As far as the the bikini goes, and maybe uh, I'll go ahead and mention this as well. I spent a lot of time watching this movie, watching that bikini. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not necessarily because it's like, oh, you know, but it kept showing through. I mean, it was a regular bikini with fur pieces glued to it. And every once in a while, and it really kind of caught me off guard because I didn't expect to see the white bikini straps, you know, every once in a while she'd be rolling around on the ground or running or jumping or ooh, ooh, or something. <laughs> and and you could see the white bikini underneath, typically in the shoulder area. I don't know. And then in later movies, that bikini became smaller and smaller. The two dinosaur follow-ups that Hammer did. So I was just going to say, it cracked me up too. And, you know, you when you look at the context of the bikini in the, in the movie as a whole and whatnot, and you're coming from two max tribe who is, uh, you know, very brutal and archaic in the scene, in the setting and whatnot. And they, you know, they've just got furs draped around them and stuff like that. And then you get to this other village and even all of their 
you know, they're actually showing them tailoring clothes in one scene. They have barely have a rudimentary language between them, and they're crafting bikinis, which I thought was hilarious. Well, that was uh, one thing that I wanted to mention. You're, you're talking about crafting bikinis. I was surprised that there was all the other women that was in the um, shell people tribe. They all wore one pieces. No one else had a bikini on. Yeah. Which kind of surprised me a little bit because, I mean, when somebody looks that good, other people are going to try to imitate that look. And I would imagine that would be something even back then. It's kind of a built-in thing that humans have. And I was surprised that they didn't, you know, have another uh, girl or two in the background wearing maybe a bikini that had a little more substance to it to not to take away from Raquel Welch, but... It just seemed odd that she was the only one wearing one. You know, you look at it story-wise and whatnot, they didn't show you anything. You know, she was obviously more progressive than the other women in their tribe because she decided to take off with with Tumark and whatnot. So, but they didn't show anything else that would show her separate her from the rest of the tribe that would make her dress different and whatnot. Usually there's something that signifies why they would dress that way instead of let's just get Raquel Welch in a bikini. Well, if we get to in our heads about this. There's a lot of things about this movie that don't make sense in terms of how the people are portrayed. They probably wouldn't have worn bikinis at all. Nobody's teeth would have been that damn white. Yeah. Uh, the women were very clean shaven in various areas. You know, it, I, you get to, well, that's not how it would have been. And I think it kind of takes away from some, from some of the fantasy that they were cre- trying, trying to create. It's funny you mentioned that women were all clean shaven in certain areas and stuff. I just thought that was funny because there's a couple scenes of the men in this movie, especially in Tumok's tribe, where they showed them where they had random patches of hair all over their legs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got to overlook the biggest anachronism of the whole thing that people and dinosaurs weren't around at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) There is that. (laughs) Nor nor giant iguanas. But I do like, uh, you know, <laughs> speaking, uh, speaking of, of that, uh, there's a quote from Ray Harryhausen that said that uh, they did not make 1 million B.C. for professors who are, are saying that, you know, dinosaurs and people didn't exist. In his opinion, professors probably didn't go see these kind of movies anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yep. Good point. A young world. A world early in the morning of time. A hard, unfriendly world. dive into, I don't know, a plot synopsis here with Scott. I want to talk briefly about the opening segment, the opening sequence, which is a bunch of explosions and lava and a voiceover, which is the only line of English dialogue through the entire thing that was actually supposed to be a lot more wordy than it was. 
they originally had written a bunch of this was a time before traffic jams and queues and dealing with day to day. I'm so glad they didn't include that because that would have made dated it badly. <laughs> um, Hammer had Les Bowie create this four minute opening sequence that I don't know what it looked like, but Les Bowie is one of their special effects guys. It would have been awesome, I'm sure. They put it together, and then MGM, who's one of the production partners on this thing, said, yeah, uh, we'll just put in some stock footage and put in all the volcanoes and stuff. So the movie starts with this. It starts with this opening. And Scott, why don't you take it away? Well, I was just going to comment on that. About 20 minutes into the film, I missed the narration. I wish the guy had to come back. Yeah. I wish they would have done it in the caveman language. That's too bad there isn't, like, a commentary that's all in the caveman language on the DVD. The narrator was Vic Perrin. Why do I know that name? I know, right? I'm looking it up right now. Did a lot of cartoon work. Did a lot of voice work on uh, the 1960s Mission Impossible TV show, as well as, oh, he appeared in Dragnet a couple of times. I think about every actor that was living in L.A. at the time appeared in Dragnet. Did a couple of uh, Star Trek roles. That name just sounds so familiar. It really does, doesn't it? Outer Limits. Trying to find something that would hit that chord for us here. Something that would be within our our wheelhouse. He's a bartender on an episode of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Peter Gunn. I don't know. (laughs) Rocky Jones Space Ranger. (laughs) That must be it. That's that's the one. Yes. He, he did the narration. So are we ready to dive into the plot? Oh, please. Well, we start off, uh, there's a group of the cave clan that's out uh, hunting. And we see uh, Dan Haggerty, who is covered in... <laughs> Come on now. That's not Dan Haggerty. <laughs> we see uh, Tumok played by John Richardson. He's hiding in some brush. and uh, <laughs> He looks like he's wearing brush. That's, what <laughs> well, that's, that's true. And uh, there's a big uh, warthog-type pig or something that um, sees him, starts chasing him, and uh, he ends up running over a hidden pit that the pig falls into, and uh, they capture dinner, basically. The whole clan comes over, and everybody seems happy except for Tumok's father, who basically thinks his other son did all the work, even though we don't see him do anything. So Tumok's father, uh, that is Akoba? Akoba. That's, that's the role that Lon Chaney Jr. played in the original. And he's played by uh, Robert Brown here in this film. Mm-hmm. You know, First off, they ripped the, one of the tusks off of the pig and it looks like he's going to give it to his other son but Tumok does end up getting it say they uh they take the uh, the pig out of the pit and uh then an old man falls in the pit for some unknown reason (laughs) 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 and we call we call that natural selection (laughs) (laughs) because they they do they just leave him there everybody kind of walks away and there's one guy left behind i think kind of throws a spear at him (laughs) And then they leave. They go back to their cave, and uh, they set up a um, big fire, and they're roasting the pig. And then there was a guy who, like, wanted the fire. So he reaches for the fire, and Akoba ends up pushing his hand down on one of the hot rocks. I'm not really sure what was going on there. But everybody starts grabbing pieces of the pig and going off to their little spots in the cave and starting to eat their, their meat. 
and Akoba finishes his big leg and decides he wants more. So he goes over to Tumok and steals some of the, the food that he's got. And Tumok's not happy about that, so he starts to fight his dad and ends up being pushed out of the cave and down the hill and banished from the cave and banished from the tribe. So he goes off. Uh. <laughs> he goes off on a walkabout, walking around. <laughs> <laughs> this is where he runs into the, the first of Harryhausen's effects, which is the live iguana, which is kind of chasing him around sort of. Um, he climbs up and under a hill and into another cave to try to escape from him. He also uh, sees a skeleton, which is a skeleton of a, a big animal of some sort. And then he runs across a tarantula, a live uh, tarantula. Scott, you're skipping the iguana's prehensile tongue. Oh, yeah. yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the iguana at one point <laughs> does catch Tumak by the leg with his tongue and wraps it around and starts to, to pull Tumak back and Tumak grabs a big rock and hits the tongue and the tongue releases Tumak. Yes. Very important <laughs> to the plot. <laughs> well, after Tumak walks for a long time, seeing a couple other dinosaurs, um, <laughs> he collapses on a beach and on the beach is a bunch of women who have run out into the water with spears and they're fishing. And I thought it was interesting that about uh, 10 feet off of the beach, they caught a octopus. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I just, I didn't think octopi went that close to the beach. Well, maybe they did in 1 million years BC, Scott. That's true. I wasn't there. I'm sorry, <laughs> but he's spotted by Loana, the fair one which is Raquel Welch and her fur bikini. And yeah. um, <laughs> she runs to his assistance because Tumak basically collapses. And the other women come running up to see if they can help. About this time, a giant turtle attacks. And it's an Archleon. Is that how that's pronounced? Sure. I, I don't know, but uh, they actually end up, the the shell people, they call it that in the, in the, caveman dialogue at one point it said which is the kind of a kind of a little in joke because that is the scientific name of that kind of turtle also i i read that uh the, that was a real turtle but they only grew to about i think four meters in length and were never strong enough to pull themselves out of water slowest fight scene ever <laughs> And and I love the, the the men of the shell tribe come attacking it with their spears and they're throwing the spears and it's hitting the shell and just bouncing off. But they end up driving it back into the sea and they take Tumak. They all carry him back to the village where uh, Liana, or Liana uh, starts to tend him. And uh, we see that the shell tribe is more advanced. They're painting on the cave walls. They're using tools in different ways than the rock people were using them. I mean, they're bikinis, bikinis, they're making outfits. They're using the spear tips to <laughs> cut material for clothes and stuff. Uh, they've got jewelry and just a lot different stuff than the, the cave people had. And Tumak, he's never seen any of this. So he's, he's looks to be kind of impressed with everything. I'd be impressed with the bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's there. <laughs> Being tended back to health, 
and um, the Chell women are out fishing, and another dinosaur attacks. An Allosaurus, I think is what it was. It looked like a small T-Rex. <laughs> when dinosaurs attack. <laughs> <laughs> this fall on Fox. Uh, the tribe you know, runs away from the dinosaur, except for one little girl is trapped up in a tree. And Tumak put her in that tree. Yes, Tumak did put her in the tree. And then he was tu- showing them how to shake fruits down or whatever. Yes. And Tumak then realizes that no one's going to come to a raid, so he steals a spear from one of the um, men of the Shell tribe, Ahot. And, sure. Uh, sure. <laughs> and <laughs> he, he attacks the um, Allosaurus to try to save the little girl. And um, while that's going on, Laana goes out and saves the little girl. And uh, then Ahot and the rest of the men decide, oh, we better help Tumak with the fight. One of the men gets killed before Tumak is finally able to kill it. And uh, then they have, which I thought was kind of interesting, a, a very elaborate kind of, a, for one million years BC, an elaborate funeral for the the fallen shell man. Of course, Tumak doesn't understand it. He's not, uh, you know, just walks away. And uh, he goes up in the cave and he tries to steal that spear that he had killed the Allosaurus with. And Ahot, who owned the spear, is like, you know, don't touch my property, man. And they fight. And Tumak gets cast out of his second tribe. (laughs) Don't touch my (laughs) property, man. (laughs) Really? (laughs) That's my translation of what they were saying. (laughs) I see. That's the subtitle? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I I had a very special DVD. (laughs) (laughs) So Tumak is cast out of his second tribe, and this time he's got company because uh, Liana decides to leave with him. And in a weird move that I didn't quite understand, Ahot like, well, I was going to fight you over my spear, but now you can have it, and gives him the spear. And then Ahot, or excuse me, Tumak and Leona leave the uh, clan of the Shell people. I translated that as I didn't want the stupid spear anyways. <laughs> Well, if uh, Raquel Welch is leaving, does he really need anything to kind of compensate for uh, I don't know. <laughs> he already had a spear, if you know what I mean. Bada boom. <laughs> how long? How long have we been recording? I've been watching. I've been waiting for some sort of... Never mind. <laughs> uh, we then uh, go back to the rock people, uh, Tumak's original tribe, and we see Akoba, Tumak's father, who's leading a hunting party into the hills. And they see a mountain goat. They decide they're going to climb up this mountain uh, to get the mountain goat. And as he's going up there, he slips and falls. And he's kind of hanging on to the rock face there. You know, think Simba's father in The Lion King. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's the same thing because then Sakana, who is Tumak's brother, think Scar from The Lion King, goes over and stomps on... Akoba's hands and he falls down the mountain. We think that, or Sukana thinks that, I've killed my dad, I'm now the leader of the tribe, and they go back to the cave and Akoba shows back up. But he's he's in sad shape and Sukana is now still the leader of the tribe. While all this is going on, we've got Tumak and Leona. They battle, uh, or they encounter a battle between a Triceratops and another dinosaur, which I'm not sure what it was. 
they kind of try to hide from the battle. They're trying to escape, digging a hole through some dirt to try to get out of the way. Uh, the battle is won by the Triceratops as he gores the other dinosaur. And this this was some of, I thought, Harryhausen's best work was the fight between these two dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. When you get Harryhausen's monsters fighting each other, they're awesome. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was interesting. Uh, I want to go back to the, the special feature that I watched. He still had the head of the Triceratops. And he was showing how it moved and everything. He reused the body for one of the dinosaurs in Valley of the Guanji. But he still had the head. And I love the way he had mounted on a piece of wood like a hunter would mount a head on the wall. <laughs> it looked really cool. <laughs> yeah. But uh, back to the, the story. We've got um, Tumak and Leona. They wander back into the Rock Tribe's territory where uh, Leona or Leona meets the tribe. And we have Derek's favorite part of the film because <laughs> we have Nupandi the Wild One played by Martine Bestwick, who was uh, Tumak's former girlfriend. When she mm-hmm. sees Tumak with another woman, there's a fight, pretty good uh, fight where they're rolling around in the fur bikini and the outfit that Martine was wearing wasn't covering much else either. Rolling around the cave floor, we get to the point where Leona basically pins Napandi down with a knife, and uh, the, all the men of the tribe are, you know, basically cheering on her. And one of them even hands a big rock to her, wants you to bash her brains in. But she decides that no, she's not going to do that. You know, they they take Leona away, and the other women of the tribe they're looking at her outfit, they're looking at her jewelry. She ends up giving her necklace away to one of the other cave women and Leona and Tumak then are trying to stay with the rock tribe and bring some of the shell tribes traditions, which Sakana, uh, the leader doesn't like. So we go out and it must be hot because the cave people decide that they're going to go swimming after they see Leona get in the water. Uh, the cave people, they've probably never been in the water before, but they all uh, go into there and then a, a flying dinosaur I don't think it was a pterodactyl, but some pterodactyl, sort of... Pterodactyl, pterodon, something. Something. Yeah. Uh, attacks the crowd there at the beach and in the water. Liana is basically snatched into the air by the creature and um, is flown back to the nest where the animal has some babies. And it looks like she's going to be fed to the babies. When another flying dinosaur attacks and they basically fight and she's the, the one... Flying dinosaur is still holding on to Raquel Welch and ends up dropping her into the ocean. They can the two continue to fight, and the mother is uh, ended up killed. And the one that picked the fight lands on the nest and basically starts eating the babies. While this is going on, Tumak finally runs and catches up with them, sees that the pterodactyl is eating the babies but he thinks that he's eating liana he's all dejected and depressed even though he was ended up only being a couple feet away from her she was behind a sand dune because she had just got herself out of the water it's because her fur kini blended in with the sand camouflage Camouflage. Camouflage. so tumak believes that she's dead sakana then leads a group of hunters in an armed revolt against uh, his father uh, Tumak, a hole, 
Ahot from the Shell People and <laughs> what? A hole. A hot. Freudian slip. And they show up. The shell people show up. And now there's a giant fight. And at this point is when I texted Derek last night and said two tribes go to war. Because there's basically. I was, I was a- wondering about that. You just texted me that and that was it. That was it. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking of Frankie goes to Hollywood for right, a minute there. Right, no, I, I know. I just I was waiting for the follow up. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so there's a big, you know, fight starts between the two tribes, and then the Earth starts to move and shake, and volcanoes erupt, and the whole Canary Islands is in a massive movement. Rocks shooting up out of the ground, killing people left and right, and then at the very end, we've got Tumak. Leona and some of the surviving members of both tribes emerging from their cover to find themselves in a ruined landscape and walking off into the sunset, obviously blending the two tribes. Or as Tracy said, when she was watching it, they finally realized that brunettes and blondes could live together in peace. (laughs) (laughs) And the ghosts start off a new tribe. The end. At least that was my impression of what was going on in the film. Yeah, I think I think you, know, you got it. Yeah, I think you got it too. Which is a considerable feat that you're able to relate that whole thing, considering there was no actual dialogue in the whole stinking movie. Well, except for the intro. Yes, which was what made for the hardest part of getting through this movie for me, because you know everybody's talking gibberish for an hour and a half, and it's just not interesting. I too had a hard time making it through this film not having the dialogue is tough plus i've never been that fond of caveman movies so the two of them together made this movie hard for me to get through except for caveman with ringo star i think that's about the only caveman movie i've actually liked no the only caveman and it's not the entire film is the first section of history of the world part one from mel brooks that i like yeah I unfortunately uh, just watched for uh, my second job, basically my night job. I, I just watched a movie called "When When Men Carried Clubs and Women Played Ding Dong," which is a caveman movie from 1971. You must uh, add the song now. It's the only reason I'm bringing it up. No, um, I I just recently watched that movie for one of my jobs, and that was kind of what laid the groundwork for my caveman experience this month. Two completely different kinds of movies. I think I've seen those two, and I've seen Caveman. That's about it, though. I mean, there's a whole sub-sub-sub-genre of, like, caveman cinema. I don't have a lot of experience with... I'm glad that at least in Caveman and the Women Play Ding Dong movie that they actually speak, uh, mm-hmm. well, English. I mean, Ding Dong is an Italian production that was dubbed. But still, I mean, they actually had dialogue that you can kind of latch on to. Because in this movie, in One Million Years B.C., you are forced to rely on the miming ability or lack thereof of some of these actors and actresses. I think Richardson and Welch did okay when they were together. 
Uh, yeah. I, I think, and, and as, as one scholar said, they did seem to have some pretty decent chemistry, despite the fact that they never kissed because apparently kissing hadn't been invented yet. But I did struggle a lot, especially with the very patched rock club uh, tribe of people. I mean, it's just very... Well, if you were Raquel Welch, beautiful Raquel Welch, would you want to kiss Grizzly Adams? <laughs> she seemed to like him. She was an actor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Martine Beswick liked him. She eventually married him. This is the movie that the two of them yep, met on. That together. is very true. And, and speaking of John Richardson, this movie came very close to becoming a prequel to She. Because the Raquel Welch character was almost Ursula Andress which would have made this movie really weird in my eyes just because of what happens in she with the Andrus Richardson characters. Yeah. Would have made this a weird kind of prequel potentially not on purpose, but like a spiritual prequel. I, I don't know. Would have been neat. Maybe. I don't know. We talked earlier before we started getting into the plot and whatnot, where the you know producers and whatnot had mentioned uh, that they didn't make this movie for scientists and whatnot. Cause they, you know, obviously scientists wouldn't be going to a movie like that and whatnot. So why not? I can see where they were going for the realism. You know, they don't speak English. They didn't speak English in 1 million BC and they had this rudimentary language and stuff like that. But who cares? You're making a movie for people in our, you know, in the modern yeah. audience of the 60s and you don't care on uh, on the accuracy with your humans and your dinosaurs running around and stuff like that. So make them speak English so people can connect to it. It seemed like a weird place to draw the line. Well, you know, to go ba go back to the whole human dinosaur thing, in House of Hammer magazine, when they featured One Million Years B.C. in a measly two-page article, they asked Harryhausen if the dinosaurs and humans being together, <laughs> living together, um, <laughs> bothered him, if, if that anachronism bothered him. And he said, not really. It's never really been proved, actually. Every year there seems to be new discoveries which push the existence of man further back in time. Besides, unless one is making a documentary film, there'd be little drama in just watching battling prehistoric animals without the human element. Um, I would have loved to have watched more dinosaurs fighting each other. <laughs> well, that was yeah. that was one of the best scenes in the film was when two of Harryhausen's dinosaurs were fighting each other. It would have taken him a decade to make the film, but, you know, give me more dinosaurs fighting each other. That was the best scene in the film if you discount the fact that, you know, these dinosaurs were fighting, which was awesome. But then there was like 10 minutes of Tupac running back and forth in his little cave, not be you know, being able to suck it up enough to try and run <laughs> past their tail. <laughs> Before they we cut started... back to that so many times. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Before we started recording, you referred to him as Tupac. And I was wondering if you're going to do that at all on the actual recording. <laughs> I've got a Tuvok from uh, Star Trek Voyager, you know. On deck there too. Oh, good. <laughs> Just so you okay. know. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I was watching that scene, and he's California. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he was crawling, moving what looked like rocks and stuff to try to crawl into this hole. And I looked at Tracy and I said, "I wonder if he knows that's dino dung that he's crawling through." <laughs> <laughs> From the looks of him, I don't think they carry. Yeah. Well, the movie was a hit. While I think it's pretty obvious to the listeners. We weren't a big fan of this one. It wasn't a hit with us. No, and, and we respect and really enjoy a lot of the technical elements at play here. I think it looks good. I think the Canary Island location 
was awesome. I mean, there are some islands in the Canary Islands that are just volcanic rock, and that's it. And it feels like a lot of times they just shot wherever they could just find volcanic rock. Okay, go stand over there. I know you're cold, but whatever. Stand and act. I think it looks great. Yeah. I, I think the dinosaur and the stop motion, the dynamation is amazing. And I feel like sometimes maybe this movie gets overlooked when people start talking about the Harryhausen filmography because it is so different from the other monster movies or, or dynamation movies he did. And I'm sure part of that is the hammer feel to it because it does feel very British. It feels very hammer, which clash of the Titans doesn't, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a disconnect there, but I think technically the dinosaurs are amazing at this, uh, especially as you guys were saying, when they fight, mm-hmm. I think the music is, uh, Oh, can I'm we talk a, about the music? It's the first time. It's the first time somebody other than me wants to bring up the music. Okay, go ahead. The music that's played, especially, I don't know what it's actually called, but the rock people theme music is horrible. It's yeah. all this really bad percussion. You know, I told Tracy, I said, that's what you get when you hire Stomp on your soundtrack. And it was just horrible. Yeah, I think uh, when Derek said the soundtrack was eh, I think that was overselling it. Well, it's the first time this guy had worked for Hammer, if my research is right. His name's Mario Nassimbini. Nassimbini. Yeah. He's from Italy. He's Italian, so... Uh, and he would work on a few other things for Hammer as well down the line, as well as a few other things here and there. But well, the the music, I mean that that was bad. But what was what also I had problem with it is it was jarring because you'd have that style, and then you'd have this very gothic, big swells of music every once in a while. It's as if they couldn't decide what kind of movie they were making. I get the percussion being used, especially while we're seeing the world being created, the, the birth of Earth. Oh, that, yes. You know? I get the chaos involved with that, and you want to throw some percussion and that sort of thing in there. I get that. makes perfect sense to me. But then the movie seems to struggle between that and becoming some sort of dinosaur epic, which it, it kind of is, but the music just doesn't seem to eventually come together in a happy medium. You know, you, you, you've got this broad kind of boom, boom, you know, music, and then let's throw in the drums. They've got it placed weirdly throughout the movie, too. Yeah. There's movie, you know, you'll come through from that sweeping, you know, background music, and then they'll like walk out of, ca- out of a cave, and then it's dead silent for like a whole 45 seconds or something in the film. There's dead silence, no music, except for something occasionally tapping in the background. When I was saying the percussion music that the, the rock people have, I wasn't talking about the drums. It's the. The scratching, it's the blocks of wood being hit together, it's the coconuts, yeah. it's the weird cacophony yeah. of music sounds. I mean, it doesn't even sound like music. Yeah, I mean, again, I get the point. I understand, you know, music or lack thereof, you know, the chaos being used to maybe imply certain things. And and I can imagine living with the rock people, probably a very chaotic and not make a lot of sense kind of life. So, sure, throw some crazy something in there but it just there's something about it that is just too over the top dial it back just a little bit make it make a little bit more uh rhythmic sense i don't know it just i struggled with it as well i mean i've got the soundtrack but i'm a completist and i if it wasn't for the fact that this was a hammer film i wouldn't i wouldn't own the movie if it wasn't for a hammer film i i know that's horrible to say because it's not some great area work but yeah it's rough but hammer loved it 
Hammer thought it was great. It made them a lot of money. They can, they talked about maybe making a TV spinoff. Oh, I don't know how that would have worked without Harry Housen involved. Can you imagine Harry Housen on a weekly TV schedule? <laughs> no. Yeah, it would be a lot of uh, use the same shot over and over and over again. Can you imagine watching a show weekly where people just spit gibberish at each other? Well, that's true, too. They would have had to change that. Yeah. Isn't that what Meet the Press is? <laughs> <sighs> that's all Meet the Press needs is a bunch of dinosaurs. Anyway. Um, no, the spitting gibberish at each other. <laughs> Hammer did pull a Roger Corman on this movie, meaning that they had everybody set up in the Canary Islands. Let's shoot another movie while we're here and get it done real quick. So they also rolled into production of a movie called Slave Girls, also known as Prehistoric Women, uh, shortly after this movie wrapped, if not that was Mart- the same time. That was Martine Beswick film too, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they rolled into that pretty quickly. Um we already talked about how Raquel Welch never came back to Hammer because at this point she's just a huge star. She didn't want to make this movie to begin with. She thought it was a silly little dinosaur picture, and that's not how I want to start my career. Granted, she was – I think Scott said at the very beginning she was in Fantastic Voyage first. They were made about the same time, and I'm not sure which was – I think she was in Fantastic Voyage first, which is one of my all-time favorite 60s films. Right. I love her, Fantastic Voyage. Her concern was she was going to get pigeonholed as a sci-fi person. Which, I mean, you're a weather girl before you started making these movies, Raquel Welch. You take what you can get, all right? Put on the bikini. Um, <laughs> I want the white leather um, diving suit myself. Yeah, well, you know. Man, Scott, I, whenever you kept telling me that Fantastic Voyage was one of your favorites, I thought you meant the Coolio song. My bad. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming Derek is dropping it in right now. <laughs> Thinking about it. See, there's not much to drop in this time around because there's no dialogue to pull. I'll give you the soundtrack to drop in. <laughs> there, use that. I'll take royalties from it. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I worry that we might sound like we're poo-pooing all over this movie. And on the one hand, while we didn't enjoy it, I think we can appreciate the technical stuff in it, right? Oh, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I also think this film didn't age well. Exactly. I think yeah. viewers in the 60s, as we talked about earlier, might have had a better appreciation for it. But viewers of today, who is used to a lot different types of filmmaking, they're not going to connect with the no English all the way through the film. Right. And if you compare this to other Hammer films from before this period, during this period, etc., those movies, a lot of those movies, your gothic horror movies, your Dracula movies, your mummy movies and stuff like that, those have aged much better than a movie like this because they have things that were, you know, they have elements of filmmaking that were innovative then but that are still unique now. Whereas this kind of, the whole non-English language thing feels like a gimmick. Well, almost, and to, you know, almost to the extent of, you know, them... That's almost a gimmick on the level of the William Castle stuff from back in the day, you know. Of oh, this wow. Movie. You know, you, know, you got to sign off on, you know, sign off this waiver because it's so scary. It's tough. Kind of not, it feels like a gimmick to, to get people in the theater, which isn't going to work these days. Wow. I don't know if I'd go that far. You know, it's a William Castle thing. I don't know. I mean, it is gimmicky. Well, there was the William Shatner film. It's all done in Esperanto. Esperanto? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Esperanto, yeah. yes. Yeah. Now, I'm glad this movie was a success for Hammer. I'm glad that they made a bunch of money for it because it 
probably allowed them to make other films that we all enjoy that may not sure. have seen the light of day without one million years BC. Yeah, I mean, this is a point. This is a period in time where Hammer kind of came on the scene, really made a. I mean, they've been around for a while, but the fifties is really kind of their heyday with the Frankenstein and Dracula, that sort of thing. I mean, this is mid sixties now at this point, and everybody else is trying to do what Hammer's doing, and the industry's changing a little bit, and. You know, for better or worse, things are getting more sexy out there. So Hammer's got to do something to, okay, for better, things are getting more sexy out there. So Hammer's got to do something to kind of, you know, really kind of make a name for themselves and, and continue to put out the kind of movie. So we do really enjoy. So we respect the movie for that as well. Well, I think sex sells this film more than anything else that's in it. Yeah. I think I think that's probably why it was such a big hit in the 60s because, I mean, it's not like today where you can go to a movie theater and see half-naked, totally-naked people, back yeah. then you couldn't do that. And so when you get a movie like this where you get to see you know, someone <laughs> stunningly as beautiful as Raquel Welch almost naked the entire film, people are going to go see that in the 60s. Cavorting in the water. Yeah. In a bikini that's clinging to her body. And, th and that goes again to you know, yeah. the modern audiences are, are more jaded towards that because they see it all the time. Yeah. I was trying to look up uh, various caveman movies, and I'm not finding a lot... Um, pre-60s. I mean, there's the One Million Years, uh, I mean, the original film with Lon Chaney Jr., but I'm not finding a lot beyond that. I mean, there's things like Quest for Fire, Iceman, Clan of the Cave Bear, things like that, but those are all 80s and such, so I don't know. And and really, none of them, I mean, you wouldn't consider those classics. I mean, can, can you name a classic caveman film? Encino Man. Yeah. I mean, one that <laughs> if you walked up to to your average moviegoer and said, name a film based on cavemen, what do you think you'd get? The closest you're going to get is that Ringo Starr caveman movie, I think, that I mentioned. And that's more because of the gimmick that they used a beetle in it. Well, and even now, though, I mean, that's a movie from the early 80s. And, you know, we're all old enough to have at least seen that on television once or, or something yeah. like that. I mean, even now, I don't think people really know what that movie is. I honestly think you'll get more people that will talk about John Goodman's The Flintstones. Yeah. Oh, wow, Scott. Ugh. I, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying <laughs> I would imagine more people would mention those films. I mean, I guess we had what was uh, what was the big budget one that we had not too long ago? One million BC or something like that? 10,000 BC? Wasn't it a oh, Michael Bay movie? Yeah. yeah. With the CGI saber-toothed tiger? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can barely remember the poster of it, and that's about it. And yeah. that's about it. I don't. You don't even hear people talk about it at this point, right? You didn't hear people talk about it when it hit the theater. <laughs> well, there was the uh, Jack Black uh, Michael Sarah film Year One from two thousand nine. Oh, you shut your mouth! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at a list right now. I'm trying to find. Yeah, there's Year One on the list. You know, top ten most revealing caveman movies, and you know the three Hammer films are on there. Oh, History of the World Part One made it. And that's not even a caveman film all the way through. No, not at all. Encino Man came up. That's the only reason why I mentioned that earlier. I'm not really a big fan of Pauly Shore. But, I mean, Iceman's on the list, and that's not really a caveman movie either. So, I mean, it is, but it's modern day, and they find one. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a weird little sub-sub-sub-genre. I mean, this is, there's the uh, Geico commercials. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stretching, man. You I'm are. Stretching. They tried to... The Geico commercials that they tried to spin off that crappy TV show. Oh, yeah, of. that's right. It was a TV show. How uh, can we forget that? Yeah. How can we? A caveman could do it. <laughs> what? 
I, not cool. I did not no. know you were there. Yes. I, could, no, I, could I, don't I don't know, know what else to say here. <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know that there's that much else to say. Well, I, I'll throw this out there. Does this film replace anybody's no. positions on their top five? Maybe in the top five Hammer films that I'm probably not going to watch again. Wow. I'll tell you, I, I'm not going to watch it in a very long time. It's going to take a while. In fact, you know what? Unless this gets like some sort of spiffed up HD transfer at some point, you know, the way that Hammer's been putting out or Studio Canal or whoever's got the rights right now has been putting out the various Blu-rays. If that came out that way, I'd watch it that way. Or at least I'd buy it that way so I could watch the special features. (laughs) Well, this film is number one on my Hammer Caveman films. Oh, good. Well, of of the three. (laughs) It's in my top five. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll just wait and order the poster off of uh, from Morgan Freeman and wait for that to show up. <laughs> uh, it's easily available. Uh, you can track it down pretty quickly. The interview that Scott's referring to with Ray Harryhausen uh, has appeared on YouTube in a couple of different spots as well, so you can track that down. I think the Raquel Welch piece as well, although the Raquel Welch special feature that's on my DVD release of this. Pretty much everything she talks about in that little interview appears in other books as well. And I don't know if it's just the same interview that got transcribed and sold everywhere else or or what. But uh, it's pretty easy to track down what she had to say. She seems more accepting of the movie now. I mean, she complained at the time. She didn't want to get typecast. She didn't want to get stuck doing it. And it's kind of a miserable shoot because it was freezing cold. She got tonsillitis out there. You know, She's wearing the least amount of clothing out of everybody. She's cavorting in the water and all that. So... And she tried real hard to try to make this, you know, an actor's movie. She tried to put a bunch of subtleties into performances. And uh, as she said, she talked to the director, Don Chaffee, about trying to make things more interesting and be more subtle with some of her performance. And he told her, please, darling, I don't want to hear any ideas. You see Rock A over there? You start at Rock A. You run to Rock B. And in the middle, imagine you see a giant turtle coming from over the hill. So it's, it's not like there's a lot of room for acting and <laughs> a deep acting, subtle acting in this. It's a very broad mime-like acting. Like I said, she seems more accepting of the movie. Uh, John Richardson seemed to be kind of bored with the whole thing from all reports, but he met his future wife on the set. And and if you are interested in that poster, there's plenty on eBay. You're looking to be between twenty and thirty five dollars, depending on what the size you want. Are these originals, these remakes? I don't know. Is there really a collector's market for that kind of thing? I would be surprised if they're originals, but you can still get... I'm looking at one here for a 24 by 30 poster of Raquel standing there on the rocks, and it's $25.99. Buy it now. Okay. You know, the other thing that this movie did have going for it, and we didn't mention it yet, I want to talk about it briefly. Ada Young was one of the associate producers on the movie who would be a producer, associate producer specifically, as well as a full-on producer for Hammer up through Hands of the Ripper. And it's interesting that we've got this woman in a production role uh, in a time when a lot of women were not given a lot to do when it came to that side of the camera, at least in terms of control and power. She was really one of uh, these women that Hammer trusted to work on a lot of these movies. And I saw a little bit about her on a special feature on the Hands of the Ripper Blu-ray. They talked briefly about her as well. She would go on to do a lot of television over the UK after Hands of the Ripper, but she would work on things like uh, A Taste of Blood of Dracula, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, She, <laughs> Vengeance <laughs> of She, and like I said, Hands of the Ripper. So it's, it's interesting to see 
her name so prominently displayed on the screen in this, uh, this early in her Hammer career. Well, it does look, you know, looking at more of these posters, it does look like One Million Years B.C. was on a double bill with she, because they've got a, um original double bill quad poster from 1968. Uh, right now, uh, you can have it for yourself for $470. That'd be a long night. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> They do. I, I've seen this image, and they do pose she and Brookell Welch's character, uh, Lona, whatever, like kind of next to each other, the, the dividing line down the middle, and they've got the two striking female figures standing there. It's, it's a neat image. Yes, they've got their kind of legs that are crossed over, and they've got the one million years BC on the left with, with Raquel Welch and she with Ursula Andrews, and it's Hammer Glamour, Hammer Spectacular. <laughs> the poster, the original poster, actually says Hammer Glamour on it. Yes. I wonder if that was the first time they used that. It's in 1968. So basically, if anybody's looking for Christmas presents for Scott, that's what he wants? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. One million years BC. I know it's got its fans. I, I can't really count myself amongst them, to be honest. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm more happy for what it produced for Hammer than the actual film itself. I'm, gl- I'm glad they were able to make money off of it. So we have a piece of feed. We got a voicemail from Victor Von Psychotron. Hello, gentlemen. This is Nick Havert, also known as Victor Von Psychotron, calling to praise you on your 23rd episode, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. As a horror movie fanatic, Hammer fan, and as a Jeet Kune Do Concepts martial arts instructor, that's one of my favorite films because it combines Hammer horror and 70s Kung Fu. So that's a win-win for me. I wanted to let you know and your listeners know that if you enjoyed the Kung Fu in that film directed by Chang Che, who you should check out some of his other movies. Chang Che was an amazing Kung Fu film director with well over 100 credits to his name. Some of his best are uh, The Kid with Golden Arms, one of his classics. The two I can highly recommend for sure are Five Deadly Venoms, which is a fun movie about five different kung fu masters all having a style wanting to do it to a different venomous animal. And One-Armed Swordsman. One-Armed Swordsman is a classic kung fu film. 
easily one of the best of the 1960s. It's got fantastic sword work in it, uh, really good performances throughout. It's beautiful to look at. I also wanted to mention uh, Suchet, who played Mei Kwai in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. She does a lot of really good double dagger work in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, holding one like an ice pick and one like a hammer. Um, some really good knife work in there done by her. A lot of good comes with, of course, but her knife work to me stands out really well. So anyway, thanks for the fun podcast. Take care of yourself. Have you guys gone back to watch any Kung Fu movies since we talked about The Seven Golden Vampires? I haven't. I have not either. I'm, I didn't know uh, Nick was a Kung Fu instructor. I've known Nick for quite a long time, and I never knew that. Does that make him like a, a, a ninja Kung Fu instructor because it's all secret and on the down low? <laughs> well, not anymore. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, I've gone through and I've tried to find some Kung Fu movies on Netflix to add to my ever-growing queue, uh, but I haven't seen any since. I am interested, but I know that I'm the kind of guy when I find something that I like, I have to like them all and see them all. And uh, anybody who's seen my Hammer Films collection, my classic monster movie collection here knows that I can get a little obsessive. And I worry <laughs> for my wallet's sake, for my finances' sake. And the fact uh, that he would start the Kung Fu cast. Yeah, well, and see, that's the other part of it. Eventually, they would turn into the, the Kung Fu one-armed swordsman cast. And I don't know if that's... <laughs> I, I'll start the James Bond cast before I start the Kung Fu cast. Now, I, see, I would like to see some more 70s Kung Fu movies. I, I have the problem is I don't know where to start. I mean, I've seen this one... I've seen a couple of Bruce Lee films, but I'd like to see more. But I just don't know where to start. Yeah, see, I enjoy it. I don't mind kung fu movies, and I'm not saying I don't like them. But I get it, and I've watched a couple of them over times. But my my Derek level of obsession comes with samurai flicks, so I don't know that I have room for to to work kung fu kung fu movies in there with them. <laughs> so you've got a thing for kung or for samurai movies? Yes, which. They are different than the Kung Fu, right? It's more swords play versus hand-to-hand. Is that the difference? Yeah, that's a big part of it. And then the, the you know, the, the your samurai, your typical samurai flick is a lot like uh, our Westerns and spaghetti Westerns. I mean, that's a lot of what Westerns borrowed their stories from was samurai flicks. So, you know, you get the wandering swordsman, the ronin wandering the countryside and coming along a village that needs help and whatnot. I don't know. I just get into those a lot. But the sword play is definitely the highlight more than the kung fu okay action. so there i mean there's there's sim- they're similar but a little bit different uh, I'll, I'll give them a shot i mean i i because i we all know i need more movies to watch <laughs> <laughs> and i will agree so, with nick i did enjoy um a lot of the work that was done oh yeah in Le- legend the seven golden vampires including the double dagger work that he was referring to i thought that uh, mike way was was amazing to watch Oh, yeah. She's one of my favorite parts of that thing. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Five Deadly Venoms is not available on Netflix right now. And that one sounds good, too. I want to watch that one. I've seen Kung Fu Panda. Does that count? <laughs> Only if Encino Man counts as a caveman movie. <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun with Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. And even though we didn't really like the movie all that much, I had a lot of fun recording with Scott and Casey about One Million Years B.C., What's coming up next? For September, we have the Stranglers of Bombay. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> We're venturing out there a bit. Uh, this is, like I said, I think it's a Pirates movie, a Pirate-type movie. 
Um, so, look, Christopher Lee. We're all doing quick Google searches here. Mm-hmm. It's an adventure film directed by Terrence Fisher from 1959. Uh, the movie stars Guy Rolf and Jan Holden, and some believe influences Steven Spielberg's 1984 film, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Ooh. Oh, Christopher Lee's not in this. I didn't think he was. You're fired, Derek. Sorry. I thought you'd be excited about the uh, Temple of Doom reference. I am, but I don't want to <laughs> open that can of worms because then I'd... there's already an indie cast. <laughs> there's already an indie cast. I know, right? Uh, I love Indiana Jones. Well, after The Stranglers of Bombay in September, we have Taste of Fear in October. The Devil Rides Out in November, which that announcement uh, stirred a lot of uh, interest on Facebook. A lot of people yeah. were excited about that one. And then in December, we have uh, Cash on Demand. I was surprised by the Double Rides Out reaction. People seem to be really excited about that one. Have You, you guys haven't seen it, have you? No, and I picked that no, for I my haven't. birthday month. So I'm looking forward to it now, even more so. Uh, all these movies are pretty easily available. It's not like when Casey picked 10 Seconds to Hell. These are <laughs> – people can track these down pretty easily. So if you have an opportunity to watch these movies or you have watched these movies and you want to share your thoughts about them with us here on the show, how do they do that? They can call us at area code 765-203-1951. You can email us at podcast at 1951downplace.com. You can check us out on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1951downplace or find us on Facebook. Uh, just do a search for 1951downplace. We have both a page that you can like, which really helps us out in terms of, well, whatever it is Facebook does when you give it so many likes. But if you join the group, that's where the conversations happen. There's a lot of good conversations in there, too. So, you know, it's well worth uh, t- checking out if you want to talk about, you know, have some friends to geek out on Hammer with. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And on that note... Tupac out.
So the one-armed swordsman is what I call the move that I do while I'm holding up the Rackle Welch poster. I'm kidding. I'm not going to use that. <laughs> wow. I lost wow. Scott on that one. That was something else. <laughs> I can't believe you went there. Oh, man. 